Our passage this morning comes from Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our leers. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of those songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the root of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is the word of God. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Matt Moynihan. I'm an intern here at Christ Central. I'm really, um, really excited to be here with you preaching God's word, even on the morning when we handle a passage like this. Um, Pastor Howard has been preaching through the books of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, which are books to describe Israel's return from exile in Babylon, um, first with the rebuilding the temple and later with the rebuilding the wall. So we're going to take a break this week and discuss or talk about uh, Israel's experience while they're in captivity, while they're in Babylon. Um, let's pray briefly before I begin. Our Father, we thank you for your word, even a hard word like this. Thank you that your spirit is present with us to guide us through it, to apply it to our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would be doing that now, this morning, uh, with my mouth and with the study that I've done uh, and with your word. Lord, I pray that, that you be uh, digging, this, uh, digging, this, digging deeply into our hearts, uh, planting this word, that you be growing it, you be bearing fruit into our lives and bearing fruit in the world around us. In Christ's name, amen. It was 3 a.m., um, and I met the doctor at the pediatric wing over at Presbyterian Hospital. I, I was really afraid, about what was, afraid of what was going to happen, and I wanted, I wanted very much for time to slow down. But the doctor only said a few words before we walked through the door. You see, it was my first year in seminary, and as part of one of my courses, I had to do a 24-hour chaplaincy over at Presbyterian Hospital, Presbyterian Maine, in Charlotte. As part of that, that role, I would be in the hospital, hospital for 24 hours. I was on a call. So if anything happened, they would call me, and I'd come down, and I'd be the pastoral support there. Uh, it was my first year in seminary, and I was, I was very arrogant on one hand. I thought very highly of myself and the work that God had done, done in me. And yet I was also quite ignorant, which is not a very good combination. <laughs> and at 3 o'clock... I received a call. I was sleeping. I woke up. They said, come down to the, the, the children's wing. And so I went down there. And I, I, met, I met the doctor outside. And we walked inside. And inside this room was this mother. She'd woken up an hour or so earlier and found that her infant child was not breathing. And, of course, she called 911. They rushed the child to the hospital. And what followed after I walked into the room was, was a form of liturgy. Uh, the doctor would begin to describe a procedure that they had attempted. 
and the, and the mother, as she, she listened, looked intently into the doctor's eyes. And as she, she heard the, the details of, of the procedure, she would inch closer and closer to, to the edge of her seat. She would lean forward. She would lean into this. Is this it? Is this the procedure that will save my child? And at each step, the doctor said, but it didn't work. And the mother would just lapse in the chair until the next one started. And then we tried this. And this liturgy went on for some time until the doctor said those last words. And the mother went to rise and fell wailing down at the, at the, at the floor. The doctor said, I'm sorry. There was nothing we could do. In that moment, I thought, how do I trust a God who would do this? How do I trust a God who would do this? We have the same reaction as we come to this text. This text is it's brutal. It's violent. There's cursing throughout from beginning to end. And we read it and we ask, how can I trust a God who would do this? The psalmist asks a similar question in verse 4. He says, how shall we sing the Lord's song? How shall we sing the Lord's song when things like this happen? From this text, I hope that we'll see this morning that we can sing the Lord's song when we trust God with our sin. We can sing the Lord's song when we trust God with our suffering. And finally, we can, trust, we can sing the Lord's song when we trust God with our justice. First of all, we can trust, uh, we can trust the Lord with our sin. We can trust the Lord with our sin because God understands how bad sin really is. Uh, we have this perspective that sin is not as bad as it, as, as it really is. It's, it's not as bad as God proclaims it to be. And we read throughout Scripture where God will, will forbid certain things for us, and we'll think, really? Is that really as bad as, as God is saying it? But we come to this text, and we see the consequences of sin. Uh, this, is, this is the punishment, this is the result that God has been proclaiming to Israel for some time. Uh, and the fact that they're in Babylon is it's not incidental, right? It's not accidental. It's not just that they happen to be there, but rather their sin led them down this road. It wasn't just a single sin that got them here, but sin per- persistently, relentlessly pushed them against God's will, pushed them as far away from God as they could get until it pushed them all the way to Babylon. Sin was so bad, they could no longer stay at home. Sin was so bad, it kicked them out of their house. God understands the nature of sin. Uh, We read in Romans 3.23 where Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. Uh, And a lot of us kind of develop this mental image as we read these words. Some of you might think about uh, an elderly family member who died, a grandmother or a grandfather. Uh, You you might think of uh, death in this way, in the sense that Dylan Thomas thought of it. Do not go into that good night. It's bad. It's, It's not good but you can fight against it, and it's, it's, it's okay, right? It's just there. Maybe you think of uh, death or, or sin in this regard in a way that you might have encountered on Halloween, right? Maybe you think of sin as, as death as the grim reaper, complete with a sickle. Maybe you think of him as this cartoony figure. Uh, but what God does here is he, he tears the mask off of how sin portrays itself to us. He tears a mask off it and shows us sin as it really is. What is sin? It, it is that thing where it takes your infant child, it takes it, and it smashes against the rock. 
Look at this image and see how vile it is, how violent it is. Do you perceive your sin in this way? Uh, Do you look at your sin and say, this is what it is? It is this violent, graphic thing. I do not. Uh, I I tend to think far more lightly of my sin than than it really is. Look at the ways that that sin has affected all these individuals. Sin has has sent uh, these Jews into exile, has separated them from from their home. Uh, Sin prompted and pushed the Edomites into this mocking stance that resulted in in retribution. Sin led the Babylonians uh, to treat the Israelites in this terrible way. Think about what it says in verse 8. Blessed is the one who will treat you the way you treated us. Uh, These things he's describing, the Jews have experienced. Sin caused this punishment to occur, but the punishment was sinful in itself. Sin is just stacking up. You see it just just layer upon layer. It raises the question for us, who is your sin affecting? Have you thought about this? Do you think that your sin is innocent? Do you think that your sin is victimless? We often think about sins within our, our heads. It's, it's not hurting anybody. If, I, if I'm lusting or if I'm coveting uh, or if I'm uh, begrudging something that's happened to me, we think this, this really is affecting no one. But that's not true. Look at what sin is doing. Ask yourself, how is sin affecting me? Who is my sin affecting? How is my sin affecting the ones who I, I, I love and hold most dear? We can trust God with our sin because he understands its nature better than we do. But we can also trust God with our sin because we see that he doesn't run away from it. Now, isn't that something we fear the most? We're afraid that when our sin is revealed, when people see us as we really are, they want nothing to do with us. When people see what's deep down inside of us, they'll say, uh-uh, no, I, I can't deal with that. But look at, look at what God says. He has sent them away to exile, but he has not left them. What does he do? He calls them back to himself. They say, I remembered Zion. Right? They say, I want to remember Zion. I want to go back there. God is calling them back to himself. He has not left them. He has not forsaken them. Even through all this, even though their sin perpetuated over and over again, pushed them all the way out to the outer edges of the Babylonian Empire, God had not left them. He did not leave them. If you think your sin is too big for God, it is not. If you think your sin is too bad for God, it is not. God will not leave his people. Your sin will not drive you away from God. We can trust God with our sin because he he understands his nature. He understands what it really is. And even so, he's willing to stick with us. He will not leave us even when we are sinful. We can trust the Lord's song. We can uh, sing the Lord's song when we trust God with our suffering. Um, we, can, we can trust God with our suffering because he uses our suffering for good. Um, I think of the, uh, the hymn, uh, Ask the Lord. Song written by John Newton. John Newton was a uh, slave trader. He wrote Amazing Grace. 
It starts this way. It says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and ever grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. And many of you might, might have prayed a prayer like, uh, prayed a prayer like that. Uh, many of you might have thought, I, I want to become more like Jesus. I want God to be a work in my life. And we have this notion that the way that God is going to do that is through good things, right? Like, like a child who grows. When he eats good food, he gets bigger. He gets stronger. When, when he has, learns good lessons in school, he develops more intellectual awareness. He, he grows up in his intellect. And we think that God will work this way in all, all contexts. If we pray for our growth, he will grow us through good things. Um, but Nuda continues, "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair." And this is certainly the uh, experience of the, the Jews in captivity. They did not ask to grow, right? They, they were quite intent, quite willing not to grow. They were quite willing to um, remain where they were, and yet God persisted with them and stuck with them. We see in verse 2, they say, On the willows there we hung up our lyres. These were not Babylonian lyres. These are not lyres that they built or purchased or acquired in Babylon. These are lyres that came with them, right? So as the Babylonian army had invaded Judah and destroyed the countryside and, and breached the walls and got inside and done terrible things to the people of Israel, they began to line up people for captivity. And they would, they would put them in a line and they were going to send them there. And these Israelites... I imagine, went through a process of figuring out, what am I going to take with me, right? I'm going on this long journey to a foreign land to be, to be abused in whatever way they're going to abuse me. What will I take with me? I'm going to take my clothes. I'm going to take my books. What am I going to take? And, and what the Israelites brought with them is they brought their liars. And they brought their liars in the same way that Saul desired Paul to play for him. I'm sorry, Saul desired David to play for him with the intent that they will soothe their souls. We can imagine them walking along, all the way from Judea, all the way to Babylon, strumming their, their lyres, their harps, trying to soothe the ills of their souls, trying, trying to soothe the burden with which they, were, which they were carrying. And they say they got to Babylon, and they sat down, and they wept. And the word that they use here is a word that means uh, to dwell. Uh, this is a confusion that some of you might have experienced when you invited some relatives over. You might have said, come on over, by which you meant sit on down, right? And they heard, move on in. The Israelites didn't just sit down, they dwelt. They sat down to stay. But I want you to notice the order in which this occurs. Although he's progressing forward to the psalm, as he moves forward, he's actually moving backwards in time. Look with me in verse 1. It says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down. And then in verse 2, On the willows there. And in verse 3, For there. On one hand, he's emphasizing the fact that they are not at home. We are there. We are away. But he's also drawing a correlation between those three verses. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3 are all related. What we see is that the first thing that occurred was verse 3, where he says, For. We sat down, we wept, we hung up our liars. Why did they do this? For. 
for the Babylonians mocked us. So what we see is this reverse occurrence. They wept. Before they wept, they sat down. Before they sat down, they hung up their harps. Before that, what they remembered Jerusalem. Why did they remember Jerusalem? Because they were mocked. Because Babylonians said, sing us the Lord's song, right? Sing us one of those songs of Zion. And what they have in mind here is the songs of Zion that refer to God's providence. The songs of Zion that refer to God's goodness to Israel. The songs of Zion that refer to God being with them. The Babylonians say, hey, you've got all those songs that talk about how God is with you. We do have all those songs that talk about how, how great your God is, more powerful than anyone else. Sing us one of those songs, why don't you? Notice, notice why this is important. After they remembered Zion, they sat down and wept. Something happened when they remembered. Something happened when they were reminded. What happened? They realized where they were. Before that, they were strumming their harps with the intent of soothing their ills. But then they realized, if I keep on soothing my ills, I'm going to keep on going eastward. And the only direction I can go is turn west and remember who my God is. What they realized is God's suffering has woken, has opened my eyes. God's, this suffering has caused me to wake up. This suffering has caused me to realize that my sin has brought me here. And so what do they do? They take their harps, their harps that have been distracting them, uh, their harps that have been encouraging them, their harps that have been letting them just get by. And they say, I'm going to put this down. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to weep. Because the reality is, I cannot get out of this. And what has got me here will not get me out of this. My sin cannot save me. And I cannot do this on my own. They say, I need Jesus here. They say, whatever comfort might turn me away from Christ, whatever comfort might turn me away from obedience to God, I need to get rid of it. I want you to notice how, how much they grasped onto this. They've looked at their suffering and realized, my suffering has woken me up. My suffering has opened my eyes. And so what do they do? They go on and they curse themselves. They say, if I do not, if I forget Jerusalem, let me forget my skill. If I do not remember you, let me not remember how to sing. Why are they doing this? Is it because they want to suffer? No, because they recognize that their singing might keep them from Christ. Their singing might just keep them going, just throughout it, uh, getting by on their own. And they realize, I would rather be in misery with no comfort whatsoever because I know that there God will rescue me. I know that, if I, that even without any comfort, my God will come. And if my comfort is taking him away from Jesus, I will leave it behind. I will drop it. They don't curse it because they want to hurt themselves. They don't, they don't curse themselves because they, they believe they're so evil. Uh, or, or that's, all, that's all they're worth. Instead, they curse themselves because they recognize God will use this cursing. He will use my suffering to turn me back to him. He will use my suffering to change my heart. John Noonan goes on. I hope that in some favorite hour, at once, he'd answer my request. I, I've thought it before. I, I believe that. Lord Jesus, give it to me now. And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me, give me rest. 
Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. God uses suffering and evil to turn us back to him. This seems, this seems on the front of it to be harsh. It seems mean. Why wouldn't God just use good things? Why would he choose to use trouble and suffering and evil and death to turn me back to him? But if we, we think about the nature of this world we live in now, it makes sense. What kind of world do we live in? We live in a world that's marked by darkness, a world that's marked by death, a world that's marked by suffering. And if God were only capable of working our lives through good, then there'd be vast tracts of our life that would be left just in the cold, be left with, with God not able to touch it. But what do we see? We see that um, when the Bible says that, that Christ is a master of death, that he entered the grave and he rose it and he conquered the grave. What it means is he is now able to use death and suffering and evil to accomplish his purposes. So now God has a huge toolbox, right? What are the, what are the tools in this toolbox to, to turn you towards him? All of life. All of the good things, all of the bad things. God uses happy moments to encourage you in rejoicing in who he is. And he uses the bad moments, the suffering, to, to call you back to himself, to, to cast you upon him as your only trust. Pardon me. We can also trust the Lord our suffering uh, because he, he gives us permission to grieve and to be angry. Uh, some of us would like look at verses 7 through 9, and we wish they weren't there. Uh, there were many uh, historically who've, who've argued, well, this text just shouldn't be in the Bible. This, this doesn't jive with the rest of it. Right? How do you fit this with the words of Christ that seem to be so forgiving? Uh, there are some who try to um, allegorize this way. Some of you are familiar with uh, Augustine, who's one of the church fathers. And he read this passage, and he tried to deal with it. And he said, the little ones of Babylon, uh, these are just our, our little vain joys. And so, blessed is the one who smashes your little joys and turns you to Jesus. But that's not what he's saying, right? The psalmist is talking about little human children. He's not talking about ideas. He's not talking about things that draw us from Christ. He's talking about babies. The psalmist says, I hurt so much, this is what I feel. I, I pain so much, this is my reaction. And some of us want to shun that and say, get this out of the Bible. This has no place in, in the text. Uh, but what we don't realize as we say that is that if that were the case, if we, if we dispensed with texts like these, we would remove all place for us to stand in the church. How, how many of us have not looked at some harm or, or injury or pain or suffering in our lives and not responded like this? How many of you have, have not experienced some deep, grievous hurt and thought, Lord, avenge me? How many of you have not watched a TV show with just a terrible villain, right, who's getting away and just thought, stop this, somebody stop him, bring him to justice? Deep within all of us, there is this, this urgent need for justice to be accomplished, 
There's this urgent need for our pain to be resolved. There's this urgent need for someone to do something with our hurt. And if this text were not here, there would be no place for us. Because we read a text where it says, forgive your neighbor, and we think, I cannot do that. That's not me. I'm the guy who hates my neighbor. There's no place for me in the church. And what does the psalmist say? The psalmist says, you are welcome in God's church because God's people suffer. And when they suffer, they get angry. When they get angry, they hurt, and they want someone to be avenged. We can trust God with our suffering because he understands it. He understands how you feel. He understands how you respond, and he gives you a place for it. You see an example of a man who is in agony, and he can speak out to God without being rejected. He can cry out and say, God, take care of this. And God will not turn his back on him. This truth is for you as well. As you are suffering, God will accept you. He will not cast you away. He will not leave you hanging. There is a place for you. There's a place for angry people in God's church. There's a place for hurting people in God's church. There's a place for grieving people in God's church, and he will not turn you away. We look at verse 7. Uh, the Moabites. Remember, O Lord, against the, uh, the Edom, I'm sorry, the Edomites. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. The people of Edom were, were the descendants of Esau. Esau was a brother of Jacob. So really, these are cousins of Israel. And the Edomites lived in um, a, a hilly, cliffy country um, that was pr- fairly adjacent to Judea. Jerusalem existed or, or, or stood on a central trading route that ran from Egypt all the way to the great empires of the east, to Assyria and to Babylon. So if you wanted to go from the east to Egypt, you had to pass through Jerusalem. So Jerusalem tended to get overrun a lot. But Edom was not the same way. Edom stood on the other side of the, uh, of the sea, uh, of the, uh, the Dead Sea, and it was really difficult to get to. They, they lived in cliffs. Um, if you think about Indiana Jones with that, um, that temple you've seen you see there with you know, kind of like the carvings, and you run through the canyon. They lived up in those hills, right? So in order to get, you, in order to get them, you had to climb all the way up there, and it was out of the way. So they were, they were untouched. If you read the book of Obadiah, Obadiah speaks of the people of Edom, and it compares, them to, it compares their dwellings to the dwelling of an eagle. They're high up in the eagle's nest in their crag. You can't get to them. And it's from this place that they look down on Jerusalem and say, Lay it bare. Lay it bare. Now, they were not without motivation. There's a, there's a long history of conflict and enmity between Edom and, and Israel at various points. There's a, there's, there was a lot of conflict over time in terms of who would dominate that land and how would they treat each other. Edom had some real grievances against Israel. They had some real reasons to say, we don't like you guys. But what we see here is they took their grievances and they applied it. When Israel was suffering, when Israel was grieving, when Israel was hurting, they used that moment to jump in and say, here's my time. I'm going to take vengeance for myself. We see a warning for ourselves. There's a tendency as we grieve, as we hurt, to want to avenge ourselves. Sometimes to take that into our own hands literally, to hurt someone physically, but oftentimes uh, we use that in, in, in verbal ways. We'll attack them. We'll gossip. Um, we will, 
will wish ill for them. And the psalmist encourages against that. He says, look at the people of Edom. Look what they did. Do not, take, do not use your suffering as a, as a moment to take vengeance for yourself, but trust the Lord with your suffering. Trust the Lord with your pain. These verses raise the question, what are you doing with your hurt? All of us hurt. All of us have pain. All of us have suffering. And all of us have to do something with it. When you hurt, when you are grieving, when you're angry, what do you do with that? Where, where are you expressing that? And, and, and see the example of the psalmist and the example of Edom. Are you taking your pain and your suffering outdoors and yelling it to cry out, seeking vengeance? Are, are you trying to avenge yourself with your anger? Are, are you trying to lash out with angry words? Or are you crying out in anger to God? Psalm 4 says, Be angry and do not sin. Sit in your bed. Right? That's good advice for us, right? If you're angry, go to your room. Sit down. Spill it out to God. And say, God, I am angry. I am hurt. Deal with this. Handle this. Or are you being like the Edomites? Are you trying to avenge yourself in whatever small ways you can? What the psalmist tells us is you can trust the Lord with your desire for revenge. Is there a place for, for revenge? Is there, is there a rightful feeling of revenge? There clearly is, because God says, do not revenge, vengeance is mine. He doesn't say, do not revenge, because that's wrong. God recognizes evil has to be dealt with. But what he says is, leave it to me. What are you doing with your desire for revenge? Are you giving it to God? Are you letting God handle it? You can sing the Lord's song, uh, when you trust God with your justice. We look at verses um, 7, 8, and 9. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, how they said at the day of Jerusalem, lay it bare, lay it bare down to his foundation. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. We read that, and we think, that seems harsh. That seems like, like these are really strong words. And, and what, one of the things that God is showing us is, God takes our hurt more seriously than we do. God takes our suffering more earnestly than ourselves. God takes our injuries as more real than ourselves. We think we've been hurt, but God thinks it more. We think we have a, a, a reason, a basis for revenge, but God's revenge, God's vengeance is even deeper. What he says is, you can trust God with your, with your justice because he will dish it out. There is never going to be a place where if you hand your vengeance over to God and say, God, take this from me, I trust you with it, that he will not take care of business. That he will not take the wrath that is due 
far beyond the measure we would expect and apply it to those who are guilty. He says, blessed shall it be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. God relates to our children in a special way. He calls children, he says, children are a blessing from the Lord. And we saw that, a little picture of that today with the baptism. That God takes children really seriously. And I don't, I don't understand entirely why it is that children play a role in vengeance, but they do. Why children play a role in God's justice. I don't understand how God is just when he does this. This is bigger than I am. But I, I bring myself to this text and I say, God, you are sovereign and you know what you're doing. But a principle God has established is that when he takes vengeance, he applies it to children. One of the implications for this, for this is, for us, is in our sense of forgiveness. There's a notion in our culture, our Christian culture, <clears throat> That when I forgive someone, what I'm doing is I'm saying, I forgive you, and I'm acknowledging that this doesn't matter. I'm acknowledging that this sin, it didn't really affect me. I'm just going to give it up and let it go. But that's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is, is not just deciding that it doesn't hurt, because it does. Forgiveness is not deciding that it doesn't matter, because it does matter. Forgiveness instead is acknowledging that God will handle things himself. Forgiveness is giving up vengeance. Forgiveness is saying, I trust God with what he will do. And how do we understand that? How do, how do we do that? We see that in verse 9. When someone has wronged us, someone's child has to pay. Someone's son has to bear that load. And we see that, that God has applied that own principle to himself. He's applied his own principle to Christ. When I forgive somebody, what I'm doing is I'm coming to them and I'm saying, I forgive you, but then I turn to God and say, God, I want you to deal with this. I want you to take your son. I want you to take him away from you. I want you to take, you, take him from heaven, put him in misery. I want to take your son and I want you to break him. I want, you to, I want you to break your son for my injury. Break your son for my hurt. Break your son for my justice. Why do we do that? Because the one who is broken, the one who is cursed, is the one who loves us and the one we are called to love. If we take our, our justice, our desire for justice, and we bring it to Jesus and say, God, take care of this, and we understand that he's applied that justice to Christ, that that full measure has been poured out on Christ, how can you desire more? Has God not taken care of business? Has God not avenged it in Jesus? How can I look at God and say, with full confidence, punish Jesus for me? How can I do that and then demand he punish someone else too? If I trust God with my forgiveness and my justice, I can trust him and I can sing a song.
God loves little children. God does not, God did not place this in Scripture lightly. Uh, he did not put this text in the Bible because he doesn't care about babies. Uh, he doesn't put, didn't put it in the Bible because it doesn't matter. This text shows up because children are so important. This text shows up because children matter so much. This text shows up because, because God loves children so. As we see suffering in this world and we ask the question, how can I sing the Lord's song? How can I be singing praises to God when this is happening? We're called to remember that we can trust God with our sin. He knows what it is. He knows its nature. He knows how deep it is. We can trust him with our sin because he will not leave us. We can trust God with our suffering. We can trust him with our suffering because he will work through it. He will accomplish his will. He'll accomplish good things through bad things. We can trust him with our suffering because he will let us gripe to him. He will not turn our suffering away. He will not turn away our, our woe. And we can trust him with our justice because he will avenge. He will avenge those who have wronged us. He will avenge in Christ. We can trust our Lord.